So I guess we'll go ahead and ease into our, our study this morning, the 11th one on this series. And um, am I close enough, Rick? Uh, as, as we talked last week, you know, last couple of weeks, we were coming down this path of Romans 1, and we did a little bit of a, a uh, roundabout, so to speak, and I think we're now coming back down into this uh, final descent into Romans 1, 29 through 32. Can you guys hear me okay? No? Not really? Yeah, it's on. It's just uh, quite the... that better? That's better? Okay, all right. Let me know if I stray away from the mic. Um, but I want to I want to kind of kind of come in with a couple of thoughts. One, you know, we've talked a lot about the illumining work of the Holy Spirit. Um, for those of you that like to listen to the old timey saints and or Charles Spurgeon, there is a wonderful uh, reproduction of one of his sermons, the indwelling uh, and outworking of the Holy Spirit. Just really, really good. Um, can find it on YouTube. Um, I just listened to it the other day, and uh, just very, just wonderful to hear the, just the consistency of God's Word. Um, but I, I wanted to kind of reconnect us with that as we move into a, a little bit of an understanding of how does this road get so wide and so wicked, right? How, how does that happen? And, and we're going to look at some scriptures and we're going to look at a little bit of, of kind of perspectives on Satan and his work, uh, particularly from Dr. Boyce. Um, for those of you that don't know James Montgomery Boyce's ministry, it was a wonderful ministry, faithful man. But he, I realized like a lot of, not a lot, but certain pastors, he inherited a wonderful library <laughs> that goes back it's one of the reasons it's wonderful to listen to Spurgeon. Spurgeon will quote back 400 years from his day. And you see this consistency and continuity, not only of Scripture, but of the very times these people were living in and how precisely they're the same as our time, just a slightly different shade of color and characteristic. Um, but a big part of this is just the sober reality of the humanity we live amongst. It's very sobering when you think about the implications of it and that we were all on it until the Lord snatched us off and began this precious work of the Holy Spirit, this illumining work of the Holy Spirit. And as I thought about that this week, I couldn't help but, and, and Spurgeon's, uh, sermon that I listened to after I kind of started some of this preparation just kind of just was so so helpful but I, I want you to to think with me for a minute about this glorious work that they do to snatch us off of that wide road and and why we are in such a privileged place as the new covenant church right 
In John 7, 37, 38, and then I'm going to just walk us through a few passages to stir us up, and then I'm going to pray for us. But I want you to just take a look at John 7, 37, and 38. Speaking to, to Jerusalem, when it is at its maximum attendance of the Israelites, no matter where they were, right? They, they were commanded to come back. The men and the boys of age were commanded to come back. There was a requirement. They were all there. The families were all there. This is that Feast of the Tabernacle ceremony. And in the middle of this ceremony, towards the end, Jesus says on the, the, we see from John's gospel, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Now, what I want you to see here is how Jesus is speaking Old Testament scripture into the hearts of the Israelites who had been reading and studying and memorizing these scriptures for decades, centuries. And what I want you to see is the Holy Spirit uses our faithfulness to the scriptures spoken to sometimes pierce the heart and fearfully other times Harden the heart. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The call, right? The, the general call to everyone. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, he screamed, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, this beautiful promise of Scripture, this heart work that is done. And Spurgeon adds that we have enough rhetoric about these words. The Holy Spirit does heart work that changes the mind, changes the heart, changes the way we think, and it always works out according to God's will as we are being conformed to Christ in this work of redemption having been snatched off of this ever increasingly wide and wicked road right what I want you to see is if you want to jump back to Jeremiah 17 9 this passage that we've read so often says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick at sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruits of his deeds. That's the passage we always go to when we think about this wickedness of man's heart. It is the passage that Jesus, when he screams, out of your heart will come rivers of living water, the mind of the typical Israelite is going to race back to. Because look at verse 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, <laughs> all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord. 
the fountain of living water. So you see what he was doing? He, he was taking them and snapping them right back to Jeremiah's words of warning about the very day he was going to stand before them. And you all know, if you study this Gospel of John and you harmonize it with the rest of the Gospels, at this point, the hatred and the fervor towards the desire to kill Jesus is reaching its climax. John 8, they were set and determined by that point to wipe him off. And Jesus screams in the midst of this crowd a passage that takes him right back to Jeremiah so that they can identify him as that river of living water. And I am sure that for some portion of that massive crowd of people, there were people's hearts who just broke. And there were others who were hardened farther down that wide road. So you see, that's what I want you to see in this. Now I want you to give a thought to this as well. John 16, in that upper room, in that intimacy of the upper room, I want you to think about the magnitude of the Holy Spirit that is in you. John 16, 5 says, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart, and rightfully so, right? Wouldn't you, Grady, if you got to walk three years with the Lord, you, you would be no, right? Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Now listen to this. It is to your advantage that I go away. Right? Do you ever think about that? Jesus is saying, and therefore it must be true, that it is to our advantage that he go away. Counter to everything these disciples were thinking. Why, though? For if I do not go away, the Helper, we know the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And the reason that that is so magnificent is because it opens the door of the church age. It ushers in Pentecost, where we, the church, have been given the saving, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, illumining us to the truths of Scripture. But what we now have and will unfold throughout the New Covenant, the New Testament writers, is the fullest, final revelation about Jesus Christ, about the one who was always coming from Genesis 3.15 so that we, the church, could then take the fullness of the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament and the one from Genesis 3.15 and the blessed work of the Holy Spirit working through the faithful church, the true church, right? That's why the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Because it's God's work, and it's being done through us 
undeserving, snatched off of that same wide road, saint, right? I want to just read this to you. So with all that in your mind and in your heart before we pray, just let this passage from Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 kind of fall on you. And just listen to what Paul just so beautifully exalts. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about your role in the church, in the world, in the day that we're currently living in. Right? Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Let that rain on you for a bit. Even as he chose us, how certain is it? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It is certain, said, and done from before the foundation of the world. Your salvation and every single step you take. Not predeterminism, but this glorious work of God through the regenerate and the illumining work of the Holy Spirit, making this river of living water flow out of you in the form of the gospel both in the scriptures and in your life. And they snatched you off of a road where you were a hostile enemy of theirs to do that. That's what I want to stir up about. From before the foundation, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden, wham, you go from being of your father, the devil, to being adopted into the family of God and the eternal blessings, every one of which is available to us right now. According to what? The purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious free undeserved gift of grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved and isn't it just shocking how reviled this doctrine of god's sovereignty is today when it is if you look at this doctrine what you find around that doctrine are the most precious promises God makes to his people because he purposed them all from the foundation of the world. <laughs> so let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the unfathomable truth that it was better for our Lord Jesus Christ to depart so that the Spirit could come and indwell every believer and illumine our hearts and our minds and move us like the wind to the outworking that culminates in being conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ. How blessed is this truth, how we desire to just honor you and exalt you this morning.
and to walk out of this worship with the desire to just take this precious Lord and Savior to all those that we have opportunity to. And so we pray these things in your ever-precious name, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, I want to kind of work ourselves into the importance of the message from two weeks ago, the putting off and the putting on, in the context of this wide road, this world of people who are consuming every placebo you could ever imagine. But the placebos of this world are not sugar pills. They're poison pills. They're spiritual poison. They're physical poison. I know Jeff has been involved with men with addictions. I have been involved for 13 years with men with addictions. It is a poison that they think actually is making their life so much better in so many ways, right? We've got to think about how we are equipped to arm ourselves through the armor of God to put on and put off. And if we arm ourselves, it means what? We're going to war. And we ought to be asking ourselves, who's the enemy? And then go into the scriptures and look at what it has to say. Because I don't think the Holy Spirit was trite when he used the word war. I think there are at least two major enemies. As a believer, this flesh still in many ways, struggling with the disease of sin, right? And then, as we talked last week, the schemes of the wicked one. And the schemes today fly around the world like that, don't they? And they capture the minds of millions of people, almost what seems like instantaneously. So we have our own sin-filled flesh, not yet fully sanctified in the strategies of the evil one. So we have an enemy within, and we have an enemy out there. That's the war. Peter describes it in 1 Peter 5.8 as be sober-minded, right? He's talking about the way you think. Be watchful. That is, an, that is a set of active words. Be careful how you think. Be careful what you believe. Be careful of what you're told. And Paul would say, because what? The days are evil. 
be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around, and I found this so interesting this week, like a roaring lion. What do you think of with a roaring lion? You, you hear him. <laughs> You're looking for him. He is screaming, the roaring lion is. He is not the panther. He's not slinking around and going to just, right? He is roaring from the housetops, I'm the king. <laughs> Satan, your adversary. And I would offer he has much to roar about, doesn't he? Look at the ideologies that he has worked and refined and are now just wholesale believed. And we're going to talk about a few of them this morning. And this idea of being sober-minded and being watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone, anyone. But I would say his choicest meat would be the believer. Right? We talked about schemes last week. We talked about Satan, and we're going to talk a little bit more about Satan so that we can understand just how brilliantly designed and implemented these schemes are. But I want to give Paul's reflection on the battle against sin, this enemy within, from Romans 7, beginning in verse 15. And I shared last week, I think, that I used to read this rather rapidly to the men in the prison. <laughs> because when you read it, I'm pretty sure that modern-day psychology would put Paul on all kinds of something. Right? Because the man sounds like he's absolutely lost his mind. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel the battle? Like, wh why did I just do that? Why did I just talk to my child that way? Why did I just, where did that thought come from? Right? That is our, our experience in Christ. And the battle against this flesh that Paul's going to, confirm us in right here. <laughs> Thanks be to God for Paul and this beautiful section of Romans. I do not understand my own actions, for I do what I want. Oh, I'm sorry. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Amen? Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. There's the disease. It's like God has made me spiritually healthy, but I still have a disease in me, and it's sin. And if you read enough commentaries on this section, you begin to get into an interesting debate. Is this Paul before he was saved, or is this Paul after he was saved, right? And he would come down, it's clearly Paul after he was saved, right? Lloyd-Jones? It was clearly before Paul was saved. He's an unregenerate man here, right? I think if you read carefully, this is the saved Paul expressing this battle with sin. 
For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So he qualifies that statement. That is in my flesh, and I'll say, uh, which God's going to replace, thanks be to God, right? For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want. You see the distinction between wanting to, the desire to, the heart to honor and serve the Lord, yet the occasional and often far too frequent flare of the flesh. Those of us that are still rearing children, man, (laughs) do we know that well, right? But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And that is not a recipe to say, you know, I, I can just send my fill because I'm not really accountable for it. Because that in me is me. <laughs> but we're at war with sin, aren't we? This is the distinction with the world. We're at war with sin. And the more we are immersed in the scripture and the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, the more intense that war becomes, not less. Because you are being illumined to the awareness of sin in you and all around you. The world, on the other hand, absolutely loves everything about the life they're living. Which is where we get Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, as we read earlier. And that is the wide road. And it's so important to understand. Just to be, um, again, encouraging as we kind of work our way through this. When you are saved you become a new creation. In this battle with sin, right, you can go to this passage in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and I'm just going to read all the way through 21 because it is just such a beautiful passage. Especially, so this is a good one to memorize, quite frankly, or to have on a 3x5 card on your, your mirror, in the morning so that when you're battling with sin you can just begin to just speak this scripture out loud if you need to so that we'll be reminded when we're in that battle with sin sometimes feel like we're losing that battle with sin we can go right here to second corinthians 5 17 and say therefore if anyone is in christ He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And you will never love the truth of those words more than when you are toe-to-toe with war, in war, against the sin that beset you. 
Because even that sin that you're struggling with was nailed to that cross. Or especially. Right? And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. Not a trivial word. We are representatives of Christ. That's why the namesake is so important in our lives. And all who are watching. And is not one of the most difficult things about being a Christian today is the false perception that so many from within the church have portrayed about the Christian. That we're no longer sinners. We're actually kind of now pretty close to the judgment seats because we're so good now? Do you see how that doesn't square with Scripture? What we take to a lost and dying and sinful world is a lost and dying sinful life that has been created all anew but yet still battles with the very same types of sin as the world does, but with a heart towards Christ. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just so you, you the, the way the Spirit prompts us, I have a note that I'll just pull up to that exact point. Look at them all. Look at David, for heaven's sake. Look at Abram and Sarah. Look at them all. And to the point, why did God, if, as many would say, if there were an editor of the Bible, they would have edited all of that out and made us all this high and mighty, you want to be just like me people. But no, they leave us written into the pages of scriptures in this battle. Why? I love the why that you get when you ask the pages of scripture. To show the world the mercy and grace of God. Not only to us as continuing to struggle in sin believers, but to a world who wants to run from that God because of that sin. And often, is it not because of the way the church portrays herself? Not like the people in the Bible, right? But more like the Roman Catholic saint who has been elevated to a point nearly to Christ, right? So thank you for that very on-point comment. I, I want to shift a little bit from that first enemy to the second enemy. And I want to just read a little bit about Satan, just to kind of sensitize us to this enemy. 
And I want to draw from James Montgomery Boyce as he comments on John 8, 41, 50, you are of your father, the devil, right? That's the exchange that's going on in that section. I want you to just kind of store these away. Satan is very real. He is not a figment of our imagination. He's not some vague, abstract idea of evil. Jesus himself refers to Satan as he personalizes it. Boyce in his days went into the rather explicit treatment schemes to take the true Satan of the Bible, the adversary who wants to rip you to shreds, and just take a look around at, we don't have to look at our world, look at our neighborhood. Look at people you may have encountered who are just shredded with poison placebos. One of the most effective schemes is the way Satan is portrayed. It's this fictional character, almost this pathetic character. And as Boyce goes on to say in his day, isn't it no wonder that millions, knowing nothing more than this fictional account, discount him and question whether or not he's even real? And isn't that exactly where Satan would like to be? But you have to ask, so what was the roaring, Peter? All you've got to do is look at what these poison pills are doing to the people around you. That's the roaring <laughs> that's going on. This is uh, Dr. Boyce on the reality of Satan. The Bible describes Satan as at one time being full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. It says that he was once in the Eden, in Eden, the garden of God, that he was the anointed cherub, <laughs> that he was perfect in all his ways from the day he was, very important, created, until the disease, sin, was found in him. And we see that in Ezekiel 28, 12 through 15, if you care to study it. In Isaiah, we are told of his fall through pride and through the arrogant desire to replace God. Now, please pay attention to that. Because if there is one consistent theme that you see throughout all of history, it is an intense, fervent desire to replace God with anything we can create. Why? Because that is Satan's insatiable, unquenchable desire. And doesn't it make sense that every child of his on this planet would be equally desirous to do so?
This is this adversary. Listen to what he has to say in this Isaiah passage. And by the way, to think that he can replace God is a debased mind, is it not? He tested God, he found him unworthy, and decided, nope, I'll make up my own God. Better yet, I'll be that God. And who's not to say that Satan actually believes he's going to accomplish that to this very moment? I don't know. He said, I will ascend to heaven, Satan did. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. This again is Isaiah 14, 13 through 15. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. Whose throne is he going after, Grady? Christ's. You see that? He's, he's going after Christ's throne. On the utmost heights of the sacred mountain, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds, the Tower of Babel, <laughs> right? I will make myself like the most high. And consequently, he was brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. And I had to add, as I read that, Satan seems to have powerfully transported this horrendous desire to usurp God into the human society of man. In the form of, you can be anything you want to be. Because within you, you have the power to do whatever you want to do. As if to say, God is a liar about the wages of sin being death. And that your fallen and separate condition is really just a fake warning to scare you. And you really don't need all this negativity, right? One of the schemes is to say, you know what? Everything is just fine. Don't be so negative. You don't need all that threatening God stuff because you can be just like him. Right out of the garden. Right into humanity. Fearfully, right into the hearts of the vast majority of children who are just immersed in this kind of ideology. The other side of this is, very simply, Satan is not sovereign. You ever met anybody who attends a church where Satan is sovereign? He's doing what he wants to do, and God's doing everything he can to counter it? Like this big, massive chess game that's being played with the humanity. That is not the case. He was created, and all of that wicked evil is hard to imagine, but within the overall plan and purpose of God to be glorified, particularly his son, right?
just becomes very important in the context of those two enemies that we know where our strength and our tower is, right? And to trust the words that we hear from Paul, that he will never permit a Christian to be tempted above that which he is able and indeed will always provide the way of escape that he may be able to bear it. The way out of every sin that we commit was right there in front of us if we're discerning of it, right? And we're in the word of God to know it. And here's Jesus' plea. Back to John 8, 30 and 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, Remember where we launched off of this a few weeks ago. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, we have... This beautiful passage in verse 24, where Paul goes through this long, glorious, what's yet to come. And then he says this, then comes the end, 1 Corinthians 15, 24. When he delivers the kingdom to God, what a glorious day that's going to be. <laughs> the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority, that's Christ, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy is death. I will set you free from an eternal death that never dies. And this beautiful passage in 1 Corinthians 15 is when all that is coming together at the end. Now I want to end with more um, caution and discernment. I want to present to you the triune God of this world, as it's called. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Is that not a fearful passage? <laughs> that is so, but John is very black and white, isn't he? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not him. We had better understand what John is talking about here. For all that is in this world, and here it comes, here's the triune God, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You think John got Jesus's message, right? Now, I thought about as we come back to Romans, you have to come back to verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And I want to just leave you with this beautiful encounter. In Mark 5, and it's harmonized, Jesus shows up on the shore of the country of the Gadarenes, 
He steps out of the boat, and wham, there are two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass the way. And a certain of the man from the city who had demons for a long time, so Mark begins a single one of the, listen to the description of this man in the context of our passage in Romans 1. He wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house but in the tombs. No one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound and shackled with chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him, and always night and day he was in the mountains and the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. Now there's a man that has to be, you're welcome to come and sit down, we're almost done, at the bottom of this downward spiral, wouldn't you say? And absolutely taken over by demons. We know that, right? They said, let us go into the swine. He let them. What did the swine do? Destroyed themselves. Isn't that something? Have you ever watched someone just destroy themselves? These guys, these swine did it immediately. But I want you to see this power of the gospel, this power of this encounter with Christ, and why we have such a powerful truth to take to people who are in this horrendous state. And because they are in this horrendous state, should not prevent us from going to them. Right? They came to meet Jesus, found the man who had been demon-possessed, had the legion, from whom the demons had departed, and I love this, sitting at the feet of Jesus, that beautiful picture right there, clothed and in his right mind and what is shocking they were afraid this is what I want to close with this beautiful picture of this man who has just encountered Christ the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might stay with him you just see him clinging to the ankles of the Lord saying I am not going anywhere without you. I'm following you everywhere I go. But look at what Jesus said to him. This is this new creation, this brand new baby believer from demon possession, totally ostracized by society, wicked, dangerous, vile, and now he's sitting in his right mind clothed, and Jesus says this. Jesus did not permit him, sent him away saying, I love this, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. He didn't have a PhD in theology. He didn't even have a Bible. What did he have? He had this powerful encounter with Christ that you have. Right? That's what we get to take to a world filled with
poison. So we'll come back to that next week, and we will descend into Romans 129. So thank you guys for your patience.